We're going to take a reading from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 23, and we're going to read one verse, and it's going to serve as kind of a theme for our thought this morning, and perhaps later we may read some more scripture. So, uh, 1 Samuel, chapter 23, verse 14, and at some point we may get to Psalm 51, so if you want to turn there as well. We may try to look at that also. 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 14, says this, And David abode in the wilderness in strongholds, and remained in a mountain in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God delivered him not into his hand. That will conclude our reading this morning. And last week, we told you that it was going to take us a few weeks to perhaps finish the thoughts that are on my mind and heart. And um, the title that we kind of gave to these few messages is Seeking God's Heart. Seeking God's Heart. And that was taken from a text in the book of 1 Samuel 14, as well as Acts chapter 13, where it describes David as a man after God's own heart. And... Last week, we tried to show, the best that I could, um, that in the book of 1 Samuel, as the story is being told, one of the purposes is to reveal a contrast between two kings. One is King Saul, the first king of Israel, who had all the appearances of a king, had the desire of the people, but had quite a significant flaw. And there are many flaws that he had, but as I can tell, his primary flaw is that he was a people pleaser and not a God pleaser. And at the core of that people pleasing was no doubt a desire to retain his authority, his standing, that his offspring would continue to rule on the throne of Israel forever, and yet God did not have use for his talent, God did not need his wisdom, whatever he may have had, his military might and strength. What God needs in people is somebody whose heart is after his, and that's hard to find. You can turn on the TV, you can think about your own associations with people, and you know that somebody who, when push comes to shove, ultimately will try with all of their heart to serve the Lord regardless of cost is difficult to find. And this morning as we look at this scripture, I guess this verse 14, as I read through the book of 1 Samuel, really jumped out to me as a symbol or a picture of what's going on beginning because what we find is that, as we pointed out last week, there were two different locations where Saul disobeys God in order to retain the respect of the people. And the last time that happens is when the king of uh, the Amalekites, Agag, he was told to slaughter the Amalekites and Agag and not take any of their goods, but he refused to do that. He took the the king Agag, Saul did, 
And then he took a whole bunch of the, the sheep and the oxen that he might make sacrifice that the people of Israel wouldn't have to sacrifice their own goods. And so Samuel meets him and he expresses God's disapproval. And then the very next paragraph, or in our place, the very next chapter, David is introduced. And before we really get into the life of David, there's something really important that I want to bring out about David and about this whole picture here. David had a heart to seek God amidst life's chaos. And that's really important. I think sometimes when we read back in the Bible and we read of men like David or men like Joseph or all these people through the Bible, including Jesus, we think of them as idyllic characters. Like in your mind, you may think of David and you said, yes, he was a courageous young boy. He was skilled at playing the harp. He was willing, a man of war. He had a lot of wisdom. He had all of these skills and talents And we kind of freeze them in this demigod place. Like they're not quite Jesus and God, but they're not us. They're in this in-between place where they're a demigod. And they have abilities beyond our own. And their life was insulated from the hardships that we typically face. But before we begin this message this morning, I hope as we go through these thoughts, if there's one thing that jumps out to you, it is that David's life was anything but removed from the hardships of ordinary life. He is not a demigod. He was not insulated from difficulty. He did not have an advantage, is what I'm trying to say, that he did not have a heart after God's because somehow he was advantaged over us and God gave him these, this life of peace and ease that he then may, in the calmness of his mind and in the calmness of his heart, have a heart seeking after God's. Actually, what is the case is the complete radical opposite. I would deign to say that David's life, as we're going to portray it this morning, as the book of 1 Samuel does, is much more chaotic than yours and I's has ever been. Ever been. Not even close. And that's one of the remarkable things about David. So the New Testament reveals to us, if you remember the book of James, whenever at the end of the book, James is advocating to us that the prayers of a righteous man, the effectual fervent prayers of a righteous man avails much. Right after that, he gives a very brief example of the prophet Elijah. And the description he gives of Elijah is not that he was a man uh, of, of, of exceeding talent, not that he was anointed by God to be a prophet, but he says this, he was a man of like passion as we are. That word passion there means nature. So he had a nature just like ours. And if we study his life, we'll find that was absolutely true. You ever been depressed? What better example in all the Bible of depression than Elijah? You ever flip-flopped? Been mighty for God one day and then doubting his deliverance, wanting to die the next? Meet Elijah. Right? 
the Bible is very clear that these were people, not idyllic characters, that they lived in a context of life that was equally, if not more complicated than our lives. And so when we go through this and we talk about David's heart, don't in your mind try to insulate ourselves from perhaps the conviction that might come by saying, well, yeah, but he was King David. No, his life was exceedingly complex and difficult. And yet in the midst of that, there's a Latin phrase called in the milieu. And very often what I fear is this, that we come to church, we do our Bible studies, and we look at abstract concepts And we all nod and amen and say, well, that's really nice and that's cute and that's true. But you know as well as I do that the hard part is not understanding it. The hard part is taking that and then in the middle of life, implementing those truths. That's what's so difficult. Because we are surrounded by this numerous amount of things grabbing and pulling and pushing and trying to deceive and our own hearts inside that are deceiving us and pulling things at us. And so to take those abstract concepts in the milieu of life, in the middle, when parenting is overwhelming, when things are falling apart, when your boss is requiring you to work 50, 60 hours a week and you're bitter, when your family is breaking down, when all of those things are happening, sometimes simultaneously, and you don't know what to do, and yet still you you're required or God is expecting of us to implement truth in the milieu, then suddenly those cute truths become a lot more difficult. And yet that's what God calls us to. And that's what if anything first Samuel reveals about David, it is that. That's why God exalts him. Listen, back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, when Samuel comes to Jesse's house and he finds David, There were seven brothers that passed before him first. And God said, nope, that's not him. Even the prophet thought one of them was him. And it finally comes out of David. And God tells Samuel, arise and anoint him. For he's the king. Now, at that moment, he gets anointed. In front of all of his brothers. He's anointed the next king of Israel. Talking about bragging rights amongst eight brothers. You've got him right there. And yet, did David have any idea that from that moment on, until he became king, the insane peril that his life would be in for years? He did not. And yet, you come to the end of that, and we're going to describe some of those things this morning. We come to the end of that trial period, and we see that from the time he was anointed... And all the things that he went through till the time he became king, in the midst of all of that, his heart was still one that longed to seek after God. And that alone is an accomplishment. Perseverance is an accomplishment. Did you know that in the Christian life? Perseverance. You don't appreciate that until those who persevered that you depended on are suddenly gone. And then you recognize, yes, they may not have been exciting. Yes, they may not have done all these grand deeds that people point to and say, look at the mighty man of God. Look at the mighty woman of God. But a consistent, unwavering, 
Whether I feel like it or not, I'm going to do what is right in the sight of God, regardless of circumstance and the way people treat me. That is something that is remarkable. Because not only are there attacks from without, you know your heart well enough, though, to know that there are also attacks from within. You want to give up. You want to quit. You want to stop seeking after God because of your fallen nature. And I do, too. And amidst all these things, David perseveres. It begins in the very famous, probably the most famous story that involves him in chapter 17, 1 Samuel chapter 17, where David is, goes out, is sent out by his father to go take his brother some food. And when he gets out there, he finds this situation going on. Three older brothers are all ones that Samuel thought would be anointed. They were brave. They were soldiers. They appeared like Saul. They were trained. He gets out there and he sees all these trained soldiers. And this soldier from the Philistines coming over. And at the heart of what that soldier is doing is he is denouncing the God of Israel. Recognize that. He is insulting the God of Israel. That is at the core of what Goliath is saying. Because there's this idea back in ancient times that if a crop of a certain nation does not grow properly, if an army of a certain nation fails, then what that means is that that God is not sufficient or that the other people have the right and true God. And so here Goliath is coming out and he's insulting the God of Israel. And all these men are afraid and they're allowing the insult of God to persist publicly amongst nations rather than step out in faith and face the giant to silence him. Let me ask you this question. Let's say you step out there to fight Goliath and you still die. Isn't it worth the effort? Your God is being denounced. Your God's reputation in front of hundreds and perhaps thousands of men is being insulted. And yet everybody is afraid. And yet that's not the only. So first of all, he sees the difficulty of peer pressure. We all know what that's like, don't we? Isn't it difficult when nobody is speaking up? Have you not seen those occasions, perhaps on the news, whenever all these people, there's a group of men that are going and begin to attack somebody, and all people do is they step back and get out their phone to, to record it. And you ask yourself the question, why isn't somebody intervening? Why isn't somebody stopping what's going on? And the reality is, if one person often would, it would inspire the others to jump in. But while that's going on and everybody's backing away, the pressure to get involved is too much. Or not get involved is too much. So David could have come quietly, given the food to his brothers and left. But he didn't. He got insulted and falsely accused, didn't he, by his brother Eliab? I know why you've come down here. I know the pride and naughtiness of thy heart. He was accused of having bad motives. And that didn't stop him. And yet those are things that you and I deal with on a daily, weekly, yearly basis. That we live life a certain way and our family or our friends judge us harshly. And we know that or we're aware of certain elements of judgment that people might cast at us. And so it causes us to tiptoe around certain behaviors or decisions so as to avoid people's judgment. David doesn't do that. 
He doesn't let the peer pressure get in the way. He doesn't let the false accusation get in the way. And he doesn't let the nine-foot giant get in the way from defending God's name and honor. So he courageously faces the giant to defend God's reputation. Because what was more important than life was God's name. You see, he was a man after God's own heart. Didn't think of self. Didn't think of people. He thought of the Lord. He wins this big battle. And his name begins to take off. He becomes well-known by people. There's a group of women as they're walking in and they're celebrating the spoil that they took of the Philistines. And they're walking into the city. The king Saul hears something. A group of women say, Saul has killed the thousands, but David the ten thousands. And Saul gets really jealous. So, again, this is, let's step out of Bible narrative here and just think of it in our lives, okay? Imagine if the President of the United States tried to kill you. Like, imagine if he did that. Like, you're at You're at the White House, and he walks out of the Oval Office, and he takes a gun, and he starts shooting at you. That's noteworthy, isn't it? (laughs) That's a life-defining moment. And how is what's happening here any different in significance to Saul hearing those things, seeing David, whose whole purpose of being in the palace is to play the harp that it might ease the the, the anguish that the king is going through. David is there to help Saul, and yet Saul still picks up a spear and tries to kill him. And it tells us in 1 Samuel 18, he doesn't just do it once, he does it twice. David, he, the way I read it, he discreetly escapes. He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't seek Saul's demise as king. Why? Well, I think because there's many views of life, but I think amongst Christians there are typically... Two groups of people, the way we view the unfoldings of our life. There's one group of people who acknowledge, remember we come to the Bible study, we acknowledge in the abstract, God is in control of all things. We, we quote Romans eight twenty eight. he does everything for our good. And then things start to fall apart. And suddenly... We don't ever want to say this verbally, but that can't be true. It's almost like these things are unfolding and God's just not aware of it or he's not stopping it and he should. So there's a group of people that were tempted to, when things are going well, attribute our lives to God's providence. But when things are melting down and falling apart, suddenly none of this is in God's plan. Unfortunately, that's not the case. What we almost find, all of it's in God's plan, but it's almost like the emphasis of Scripture is especially the bad times are in God's plan. Especially those times. Because those are the most formative. 
Those are the parts that break our hearts most potently. Those are the things that reorient us away from a lifestyle and a mindset of self and sin and towards God. Then there are other people, and they're very few. And David is this way. Thing after thing happens. And every time something unfortunate happens, he doesn't go back to questioning God, why is this happening? He trusts. Just like being anointed king was of God's divine decree, so is me being targeted by the king of God's decree. I don't understand it. I don't enjoy it. I lament it, actually. But I accept that this is God's will. Saul in chapter 19 He tries to kill him, but then it not only goes about his life, it goes about the interpersonal things in his life. A a, a detail that I had forgotten was, we obviously know that the king Saul gave David his daughter, Michael. But what's important to remember that I had forgotten was that there was another daughter before Michael. And God had promised, or rather Saul had promised David that if he went and he accomplished a certain military feat, that he would give Merib, Saul's daughter, to David. And David goes and he exceeds God's, or excuse me, he exceeds what Saul required of him. He comes back, he's expecting to get married to Merib. And King Saul deceives him and gives her to another man. And what could that do? Well, I would imagine if I was fully expecting to marry my, at their time they were polygamous, so this is his first marriage. I'm fully expecting to marry my wife. His life is going to be, as you know what marriage does, altered forever. And all of a sudden, as your affections are being laid on this woman, as your expectations for the remainder of your life begin to develop, and then suddenly that is stolen away in a moment and another man is given to her. Imagine the anguish that you would go through in that experience. And yet what we find is that David doesn't get resentful at King Saul. David doesn't refuse the promise of Michael, his other daughter, later on and say, you know what, I've seen this before. You did this to me once. I'm not going to go through the pain of having this be done again. He accepts God's will. And his desire is, Lord, if this is what is happening in my life, I will accept this lot. A key quality that somebody has accepted, excuse me, that somebody is seeking God's heart is they accept the lot of their life. Say it again. A key quality that a person is seeking God's heart is that they accept the lot of their life that God has given to them. Whatever it might be. Because these things don't unfold. And so rather than bitterly, resentfully, as trial and hurdle comes one after the other after the other, constantly being brought back to the Lord and saying, why? Why me? Why does this have to happen? Lord, deliver me from this always. There is this deep acceptance that I might not find pleasantness in it. I might not 
desire. I might want this to change and even pray to that end. But ultimately, in the deepest part of my being, I will accept the life God has given me and I will seek to not only endure it, but, but live it with joy. That's somebody who seeks after God's heart. Somebody who doesn't. Somebody who seeks after their own heart is one who is malcontented often, all the time, or often. They're malcontented. And their blame is circumstance and situation, or as the world will say, the universe has not dealt me a good hand. But ultimately, it has to be that somebody's not one who is seeking God's heart. Lord, these things are unfolding, and I'll accept them for what they are, and I'll praise you in the midst of the storm. Here, there's another account, I believe it's in 1 Samuel 20, where, it's not right, it's 1 Samuel 19, where Saul, two more occasions, tries to kill David. On one occasion, he sends him out into a highly um, active combat zone, just expecting that when David gets there, he's going to die. David doesn't die. On another occasion, he sends a group of men while David is sleeping to kill him. And then we find something in 1 Samuel 19, verse 7, that is almost hard to believe. After all of this that Saul has done, David would have every reason in the world to hate Saul, to resent Saul. But Jonathan brings them both together. And says, listen, we need to reconcile. Now listen, Saul was always the perpetrator and David was always the victim. And yet David willingly comes to seek reconciliation with Saul. You know, I saw, I remember not too long ago, there was a news story. It may have been a year ago or so. There was a news story where a woman killed this man. And it was, so, it was so profound watching this, uh, this story unfold. And she was indicted. She was found guilty of the charge. And they allowed the family to come and just give closing words. And this younger brother, 17 maybe, just to guess his age, gets up. And as everybody else had ex- expressed vitriol and hatred towards this woman... He didn't give in to that peer pressure. He stood up and with tears in his eyes, he says, I want you to know that I forgive you. And that the only way I can forgive you is because Christ has forgiven me. And I hope when you're in prison that you're not miserable. I hope in prison that you find Jesus Christ. He looked up at the judge and he said, Judge, can I please go hug her? And including the judge, the whole courtroom wept. Because it was a display of agape, divine love. That is not natural. What is natural within our nature is to have resentment 
and anger and bitterness and to look at somebody who has perpetrated against us and say, I'm glad you're getting what you deserve. David doesn't do that. And it is a sign that he is a man after God's own heart. Why? Because that's what God wants. We know that because he expressed that in the image of his son, Jesus Christ. He wants victims and perpetrators to be not only brought into reconciliation, but to be made one in the forgiveness that Christ offers. David wants that. I could give you more examples of, of that, of David's life. I'll give you one more, and then I'm going to move to one other thing, and I'll be done this morning. There's an example where twice God presents the opportunity for David to get vengeance. Verse 14 that we read to you in 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 14 said, Every single day Saul sought to kill David. That's how bad it got. Every single day. And it tells us in the next chapter that there were men going all throughout Israel. Looking under every rock and every tree and in every cave trying to find David. David's life is at this moment circumstantially in an awful place. And they go into this cave in En Gedi. And Saul walks in. And he is so close David could touch him. Saul didn't know he was there. Would not every person say it's fair if a man who has altered his life and tried to kill him countless times, wouldn't it be, even in our own fallen mind, say, well, I understand. And David doesn't retaliate. He stays the sword. And then it happens again. Saul comes out of the cave. He repents. He goes back to the kingdom. Then he gets mad again and he seeks David again. And then Saul is sleeping in the middle of a camp with all of his men surrounding him. And David sneaks in and gets so close while David and all of his military men are sleeping that he could have killed him. And he stays his hand. Why? Because vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, not yours. Revenge is never part of, any, uh, part of God's plan in anybody's story. When you get the upper hand against somebody who has wronged you, what God desires is to display, in his heart, is to display his love, not vengeance. David, in the chaos of life, seeks God's heart. There's one more layer I want to add to this, and I'll be done this morning. And that is this. Not only in the midst of chaotic life is David having a heart after God's, but when David has sinned terribly, he still is seeking God's heart. Now, I'm going to read from the 51st Psalm for a moment. Two types of responses to people's own sin, I think, probably more but two that come to mind. Both wrong. There are some people who are dismissive of their own sin, but embellish the sins of others. That would be the majority of us. I look at my own sin, and I say, eh, not that big of a deal. And I find all these circumstantial reasons to explain away my guilt. 
and yet I look at my neighbor, and I know 2% of their situation, and I see their one sin, and I embellish their sin. And it's a way of concocting pride in the heart. My life is awful. That's why I sin. You have the perfect life. You shouldn't sin, but you do. So very often, people are dismissive of sin. Like it's not a big deal. But the reality is, you and I don't have a right to judge sin. God does. God alone. And he has already in his word revealed his opinion about sin. We can read it if we choose to. There are other people who have a struggle with sin and here's how it goes. I said a curse word. God will never forgive me. And their heart and their mind begin this devolving into this vortex of shame and guilt And they can't function because the guilt and weight of their own sin drowns them. And listen, both are equally wrong. Both revolve around self. Think about yourself for a moment. What do you struggle with of those two? Do you take sin lightly? Or does it too often drown you? The 51st Psalm is the perfect balance of what God expects when we sit. Here David is. And it tells us in the prior part of the Psalm, this was after he sinned with Bathsheba. So we know David has murdered a man, a completely innocent, faithful man. Not only any man, a good, faithful man. That he has stolen his wife, impregnated her. And then, by not acknowledging it, lies about it perpetually for a while. And then Nathan comes and confronts him about what he has done. And this is the embodiment of David's heart after he ascended. Have mercy upon me, O God. According to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, the only, have I sinned. And done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. That last part of verse 4. I think this is what it means. You can look at it yourself and determine if that's what it means. David spends three and a half verses. He had hidden his sin. That was the whole reason why he killed Uriah, is because he was trying to hide it. And that's what we do when we sin. Adam, our forefather, demonstrates this perfectly. When you sin, you cover it up. And then when you sin and you're caught, you blame others. It was the woman you gave me. It was her fault. And then she says it was the serpent's fault. And so we cover it up, and then when we get caught, we blame And then we seek to avoid the punishment. 
Like even if we come forward and say, and it's an amazing thing that people do. You know what? You're right. I've done wrong. Now, please don't punish me this way because that would be unfair. And so that's the nature of our attitudes towards our own sin very often. David takes the opposite approach. Here's what he says. Lord, this is what I've done. When you judge me, that's what the end of verse 4 is saying. When you judge me, I want you to know accurately what I have done, so I am confessing my sin before you. See, David is completely transparent. It dawned on me a number of years ago, whenever I was praying one day, I was repenting of sin. And I began to notice that when I would get to sin that I was uncomfortable with, I would speak about it to God in veiled terms. You know, like I didn't want to admit with the description what exactly that it was. I would just say something in my head in my prayer like, Lord, forgive me for that. And then I would move on. I read this 51st Psalm and I saw this man who was saying, Lord, here it is. Open before you. This is what I have done. And I've said to you before, it is a powerful thing when in prayer, in your prayer closet, that you confess before God the deep sins of the hiddenness of your heart. It does a work of penitence and humility that it creates in your heart when you say, God, I have desired this more than you. I have loved this and I shouldn't have. I have lusted in this fashion. I have been covetous for so many years of my life. I have have had resentment and bitterness, not only towards those people, but towards you for not delivering me from this terrible circumstance. God, I have even avoided you. There have been times where I have hated you or I have hated you others and suddenly with nothing between me and God there is a I can't even explain it there is this honesty and sincerity breeds a connection you ever had a secret you held from somebody Maybe you were mad at them for something and you held that for years and then finally you got it out and rather than pushing you away from that person, it actually brought the two of you closer because you came clean or they came clean. They said, listen, this is, I felt an awkwardness. I'm sure you have too. And here's the reason why. And suddenly you reconcile and then, and just the honesty of it is the process of mending the relationship and David in the 51st Psalm, he has sinned grossly, but to illustrate the fact that he was a man after God's own heart, despite the awfulness of his sin, he comes before God. He says, God, this is what is separating me from you. Here it is before you. And connected to that prayer is Lord over and over in this psalm. And I won't read it all. He says, Lord, cleanse me. Lord, wash me with hyssop. Lord, take away the transgression from my heart. Lord, take this away and forgive me of my trespasses. Because verse 11 tells us that is what has caused you to be removed from me. See, David's reaction to sin is not to so focus on self. And all the things that are wrong with my life that you just get caught in this vortex that is, that is nearly impossible to get out of. He doesn't do that. 
No more than he diminishes his sin. What does he do? He tells, he does to God what God instructs us to do to God and to one another. And that is when we have sin that separates, bring it out in the open before God. Acknowledge it. Repent of it. People will use his sin as evidence that he was not a man after God's own heart. I'll say this. If your sin is covered with a lack of repentance, then that's good evidence. But if your sin, he was a man of like passions just like you are, and I am, and he fell into a deep, horrible thing. All of which you and I are capable of. And yet, whenever he recognizes it and is confronted about it, that moment determines where our hearts are at. The moment after we're confronted with sin and truth reveals the status of our hearts. If we say, you're right, but don't act, we're not men and women after God's own heart. If we deny it, we're not men and women after God's own heart. David demonstrates, even when I have messed this thing up, Lord, I want you. I find it tragic. I find it very tragic. Sometimes a Christian will fall into sin, terrible sin. They'll commit adultery after 30 years of being with their spouse and live and go run with somebody else. They'll I could give you a whole list of them. You know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about scandalous sin that people begin to know about. And then they run. And they leave. I, I understand the sin because I could see how you would fall into that. I understand the initial reaction is I got to get away from here. And I'm an adult. I can. So I'm going to run. And I can imagine like David doing that for a while. But then wouldn't it be that that is the thing between you and God? Like, I can't, I can run from everybody else, but when I bow to pray, God knows it all and more. What I wish that people would know about, this is how I feel about people who grossly sin. My desire is not to say, get out of here and don't come back until you've paid your penance. That's not what my desire is. I think at the heart of God is this. Confess your sin to God and truly repent of sin. And come back. Come back to God. Come back to his people. Come back to a life of Christian service where you want to pursue him. And no matter how great the sin, God can redeem it. That is one of the beauties of all of scripture is that there is no sin that disqualifies us from the grace and benevolence of God. And Paul says in Romans 6, then if that's the case and we continue in sin, that grace might abound. God forbid that. That doesn't give us a license to sin, but it gives us a hope once we have sinned. David. David had a heart after God's, 
two people I'll place before you and I'm done. Saul was like many of us, so mindful of the carnal world, so mindful of people's opinions, and so mindful of maintaining status among men. And God got rid of him. And even before God got rid of him, not only was he useless to God's cause, he was detrimental to God's cause. And then this ignorant, in the sense of life experience, ruddy boy who is childlike in many ways. I have found the greatest truths in life are often very, very simple. And this is one of them. Seek God's heart no matter what. Like before we get into all deep theology and you want to throw out all these, uh, these, these seminary words, throw all of those away and let's get to basic, simple truth. Seek God's heart no matter what. That'll get you further in life than having all the perfect understanding of God's word. Circumstance will arise that will try to dissuade you. Your own sin will arise that will try to dissuade you. Satan will attack you. You'll feel lonely. Peer pressure will come and tell you to act a different way. People will falsely accuse you of things. All myriad of things throughout your life will unfold, but amidst it all, forget what people think. Forget what you think. Really? How is my opinion better than any of yours about my circumstance? What matters is what God thinks, where his heart is at. What a testament that in Acts chapter 13, verse 22, when Peter, a thousand years later, more than a thousand years later, is preaching a sermon that has nothing to do with David, but David is just a, a casual example that he uses for two sentences, and he wants to describe David in just one adjective, and the adjective or the description he uses is, David, a man after his own heart. I've thought about that before. The adjective that God would use to describe me when this life is over. What is it? He wanted to please and obey God no matter what. He was a man after his own heart. Let it be said of us, all of us. Sometimes Brother Brad was long-winded. Sometimes his theology wasn't right. Sometimes he was too persistent. Sometimes he did these things that were irritating All those completely justifiable. But let it be said of us that when it came down to it and I had to act in my life, not believe, act and live in my life, that the evidence of my life reveals the status of my heart, the status of your heart, that in the end, David sought God's heart. So the question lies before you and before me. Are we people after God's heart? I'm not going to give commentary on that. I can't answer that. I do well to answer that for myself. Are we people after God's heart? Because the alternative is that we're people 
after others or our own heart. There is a loss of something in that. Here it is. When you're a man after God's own heart, when you're a woman after God's own heart, here's what I'll say is a dear cost you pay. Your time and ambitions are no longer under your control. And that's a really hard price to pay for being a man after God's own heart. I'll guarantee you this. If you seek God's heart, your life will not look like what you want it to. That's just a fact. If your life is looking exactly what you want it to, it's probably proper evidence to reveal you're not a man or woman after God's own heart. How do I know that? Because God's will is perfectly righteous and mind is perfectly flawed. He is perfectly omniscient. I am so narrow and short-sighted, it's embarrassing. This morning, I would encourage you, certainly don't mean it to be a rebuking message as much as a revealing message. That's the intent of it. Sometimes my tone gets away with me. It's a revelation to me to think these things, and I appreciate God's word for revealing them to us.